Do I get a Merry Christmas back? Okay, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> awesome. So good to see you all, and I uh, hope that everyone is just um, enjoying and anticipating uh, this time of year. I know a lot of family and, and friends come back, and so it's just a great time just to um, enjoy those things. Um, I remember, too, because I did not grow up in a, in a religious household, and so uh, Christmas was celebrated, you know, just more as a cultural holiday, and we still had a tree and things like that and got presents, and it was fun. But um, really, I didn't just for, gosh, all the way up till college, really, because, again, I didn't have any Christian upbringing that, um, you know, I just thought I didn't know the religious underpinnings of, of Christmas. I didn't know, understand who Jesus Christ was. Okay, so confession here is that, you know, the name Jesus Christ, right? I mean, all the way up until college, I thought Christ was Jesus's last name. As in, you know, Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph Christ and Mary Christ. I mean, really, that's, that's how bad, you know, uh, my religious under, understanding was. Um, quite a long way that God has, has brought me. Amen. But uh, maybe some of you here, too, are kind of exploring uh, what church is all about or who Jesus is or you're kind of new to the faith. And you might have that same kind of question, too. Like, what is the Christmas story all about? Um, and uh, you're, not, you're not sure. And so there was one writer in the New Testament. His name is Matthew. And he was a Jew, and he's a tax collector. And he eventually became a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, one of his inner circle, one of the closest friends of Jesus and his ministry. And so, of course, they would have told stories, you know, around the campfire. Matthew would have known his mother, Mary, and heard the story about Jesus' birth. And Matthew would have done his own research when he wrote one particular book of the Bible called the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew. And so he himself records the events surrounding Jesus' birth. And so there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and it begins this, this way. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Thanks, because that's what we were asking. And so that word Messiah in the original Greek Anyone want to take a guess what it is in Greek, what Messiah is in Greek? Anyone? Okay, it's Christos, okay? So that's where we get Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christos. That's where it comes from. And so Matthew's coming from a perspective that this baby who's come is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who's been foretold would be the deliverer not only of Israel, but for the whole world. And so verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Her mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And so it's kind of crazy when you think about this, that what happened was that Jesus, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was found to be pregnant. She hadn't had sex with some other person. There was no, you know, weird things going on, but she was found to be pregnant with the Holy Spirit. Now, when you hear that, that's just crazy, right? A person, a mother who is carrying a child, and there was no father. It just sounds crazy. In fact, it was so crazy, it was crazy back then in first century as well, that nobody believed her. Her parents didn't believe her. She was engaged to Joseph, and Joseph didn't even believe her. And so because of that, the next verse, it says that Joseph, her husband, they were engaged, was, even though he was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he could have had a lot of bad things happen uh, to Mary. He had in mind, because he didn't believe her, that this child was of virgin conception, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, if these verses sound familiar, it's because this is also where we started from last week. Verse 20. 
But, he, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, when it comes to this aspect of dreams, we all have had dreams before, right? Sleeping and you're dreaming. One thing about dreams is dreams are highly emotional. Even though they could be the weirdest things that you're thinking about, dreams that you sense something, you always feel something. Maybe some of you, have you ever had a dream that was so intense, like you wake up like in a cold sweat, or, or you wake up and you're, you're scared, or you wake up and you're really happy? I mean, dreams are really, they're intensely emotional. And so what we want to do is when we hear these words is that as the angel's speaking these particular words to Joseph, Joseph is getting very emotional. And this is what the angel says to him. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will, and I'm going to stop there, because what I want to do is when we finish that sentence of what this Jesus will do, I want us to feel the full impact that Joseph would have felt in the same way as he was hearing this announcement of what this and who this baby Jesus is. We need to understand a little bit of the context because he was, Joseph, a, lived in the first century, religious man, Jewish. He was hearing the angel's words. And because the angel's words were pregnant with all this religious theme and religious imagery, it would have been stirring up just emotion and feeling and intensity of who is this child? What is going on in my life? Because again, the angel was dropping these huge theological hints and it would have been emotional. It felt real to Joseph. Just like when we dream, it feels so real, so intense. There are three things that the angel is dropping these hints of like, who is this baby? So the first one is that he calls Joseph the son of David. He calls him by this name, Joseph, son of David, which is really, really strange. The reason it's strange is this. First of all, is that back in the first century, Jew in Jewish culture, they didn't use last names. Jewish culture, people actually didn't start incorporating last names until the 10th century AD. So in first century Palestine, the way you would have named people is you would call them by their, by their first name and who their father is. So, for example, Jesus in Palestine, he would have named, been named Jesus, Yosef, son of uh, Jesus, son of Joseph. Jesus bar Yosef. Jesus and his father is Joseph, the carpenter. Okay? That's how they have named it. Joseph, when the angel calls Joseph, he calls him Joseph, son of David. But here's the thing, is that David wasn't his father. So it's really strange. I mean, no one calls him, no one would call him by that. When you look at uh, Matthew chapter 16, we find out that Joseph's name, because the, well, the whole genealogy is there, Joseph, his father's name is Jacob, is Jacob. And the only David that is in his lineage, when he calls him Joseph, son of David, is that there's one really famous David, the only David in his lineage that's really famous, King David. And so that would have kind of begin to question, kind of solidify this idea that you're calling me Joseph, son of David? David in whom this particular line that God said, promised that out of the lineage of David would come the Messiah. And so it would have just begun to birth in his mind like this. It would have caught him off guard so strange. Why are you calling me son of David? 
unless, unless, could this be, this baby being the Messiah? The second big hint is, of course, is he refers again that Mary is found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So again, this, this is the night, part of the nightmare of the whole situation. This is not a normal birth. Joseph is not the father. This is a miracle baby. And Matthew, he helps us out. He helps the reader out and reminds us in verse 22. He says, this virgin birth, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Verse 23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. This text is thousands of years, maybe 4,000 years old of this particular text that comes from Isaiah about this Messiah, the leader, who would come from virgin birth. Now, what you need to know is this, is that ever since this text was written, and when Jewish rabbis would study this text, nobody thought, there weren't any writings, where nobody thought that this, was, this text was to be taken literally. Nobody was looking for an actual virgin birth, that the Messiah was going to come from a virgin birth. No rabbi, no theological thought were thinking that. The way they took this, because it's impossible, right? The way that rabbis took this was that this deliverer, this savior, this Messiah, was going to be so amazing, so wonderful. His feats were going to be so much greater than anyone could ever imagine that his origins would be that of legend. Does that make sense? He was just going to be so great that there would just be myth around him. But they weren't actually looking for a literal virgin birth. That was not in their conception because that's impossible. But the excitement is building. And so Joseph, you know, it's, it's virgin birth. And then, and then the angel gives him this particular verse that stuck in his mind that, oh, we're supposed to take this verse literally. Are you serious? Could this really be the Messiah? It can't be. Could it be? Oh, it can't be. By the way, just for, uh, just for you to know, if this particular verse and the, uh, the idea of the Immaculate Conception, sometimes it bothers people right? It's one of those things, especially if, let's say, your non-Christian friend was reading this, you know, when they come to you and say, hey, this, this virgin birth part, it's just, I mean, you guys are crazy, <laughs> you know? Why do you believe stuff like that? And, you know, I took this comparative literature course in, 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 uh, in college, and they just talked about how Christians sometimes, you know, borrow stuff from other world religions, and, and you know, this whole thing of virgin birth, and this sounds like, I'm just, you know, I'm going to say, this whole virgin birth, it sounds like the Christians are kind of copying the Greeks, right? Because, you know, there's this guy named Zeus, and Zeus was just infamous, right? You guys know Zeus, right? The Greek mythological god, the head god, and he would have, he would mate with other humans, and they would have babies, and then that's why the per Percy Jackson series, anyone read the Percy Jackson series, okay? It's so awesome, okay? There are all these demigods all over the place, right? Isn't, isn't the Bible, aren't these writers just kind of doing that to make somehow the Bible or the story of Jesus seem more credible, and so for some of you, maybe when you heard that, like, it really made you question things, restore your faith or something like that. Here's, here's just another, another side to that, okay? When the writers wrote this, Matthew wrote this, and Luke wrote this, and John wrote this, they didn't have to put the virgin birth story in there. Do you know that? Because today, when we read about the virgin birth, it sounds so impossible, it sounds not credible. That same idea was back in the first century, too. When first century readers were hearing this for the first time and thinking about this, they would be, they would th be thinking the exact same thing you're thinking. This sounds like the Greek gods. This sounds like Zeus. They would be thinking the same thing. It would also make the story less credible. So you need to ask yourself, 
Why would the writers put in a story that they didn't have to, that made the gospel and made the origins of Jesus seem less credible? Why would they do that? Okay, that's one thing to think about. The second thing to think about is this, is that remember that the Jewish religion and the Jewish culture, one of their great distinctives or, or innovations that they brought was that for centuries and centuries, when it comes to people's ideas of God and who God is, it was always polytheistic. Polytheistic means that there were always many, many, many gods. There was the God of the, God of the trees, God of the forest, God of the cornfields, God of the sky, God of the sun, God of the moon. There were gods everywhere, kind of like Greek mythology in a way. And all the cultures had a pluralism of gods. Another thing about the, this idea of the different gods is that the gods were very much like humans. They were just like us. They had all the vices that humans had, but they just had more power. And so when it came to actually how the gods, uh, you know, dealt with humans, how they dealt with, with each other, they were at war with each other. They were jealous of one another. When it came to looking at humans, they would just look at humans as, as their minions, as, as just people that they could just manipulate on the chessboard. When Abraham comes on the scene and introduces and, and, is, and, is, and is introduced to the God of the universe and, and, and so on, the distinctive or the innovation that the Jewish theology brings, okay, where that comes from, is that there was only one God is that there's only that one God. And this one God is unlike any other God that we could ever understand or know. And he wasn't like us. He wasn't filled with all those vices. This one God is actually really good, really trustworthy, really loving. And instead of humans uh, being created just for the, the pleasure and for the manipulation of the gods, this one God created humans as his highest creation that he actually wanted to have fellowship and love with. This is one of the distinctives that separated the Jewish understanding and theology of God from all of the other nations. You see, what's important in Jewish theology is to be distinctive from all the other nations. So if a Jewish person then were to read the story and hear the virgin birth, they would be like, wait a minute, we're not like those other religions. This is a virgin birth, and it sounds like you're copying from the other Greek, you know, sources. Why would Matthew and Mark and Luke put this story of a virginal birth when it gives, when it discredits them among the Jews and the Gentiles? Maybe because it's true. Maybe because it's true. Maybe because they wanted to give the full story. Why would they purposely do something that would discredit them? Maybe because it's true. Anyway, that wasn't meant to necessarily make you, you know, convert all of you and get, now I know for real, it's the, the immaculate conception is true. But at least it makes you wonder and think, why would they do that? Why would they do something that would discredit their own story? Maybe because it's true. All right, so the third thing, and this was the biggest one of how it crystallized in Joseph's mind. It would just been uh, uh, just so exciting for him is the baby's name. So neither Joseph nor Mary, they don't get to name the baby. It's kind of messed up, right? As parents, they don't get to name the baby. I remember when our firstborn, when Mia, and Mia's birthday was yesterday. Happy birthday, Mia. Happy birthday. Okay, so, 
So when Mia, when we were thinking about names, Angel and we were thinking about names, when we came across the name Mia, one of the reasons why we just both just honed in on that name was because the name Mia means mine. It means mine. And she was our firstborn child. And there was just something about that where that name and that this was like our baby. Of course, I know it's, it's God's baby. You know, it's a gift by God. But at the same time, it was God's gift to us. It was, it was she was ours. She was our baby. We both gravitated to that name, Mia, which means mine. But the angel, he tells Joseph, he tells Mary, no, you guys, you guys don't get to name the, name the child. And perhaps this was the scariest part of Joseph's dream because he's thinking, who is this angel going to name my baby, right? Please not Melchizedek or Methuselah or Jehoiachin. Even the Jews have trouble pronouncing those names, right? Please don't name my baby something weird, right? But the angel says to him that his name will be Jesus. And everyone who was reading Matthew's gospel and everyone who was hearing Matthew's gospel being read in the early church, that's how, how they would have done it. And Joseph himself, when he heard that name, that his name would be Jesus, it'd be like, bingo, wow, this child is it. This child has to be the Messiah. I mean, it was just such a confusing, such an amazing moment, all this emotion, because when he heard that name, Jesus, it would have crystallized in his mind. It would have crystallized in his heart the idea that this child must be, can it be? It can't be. It must be the long-awaited Savior of Israel. Now, why is that name so important? Why is the name of Jesus? Why was that the linchpin? Why was that the, 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 the um, last piece of evidence for him to really realize and know that this child must be the Messiah? It's interesting because the name Jesus in first century Palestine was a very common name. It's a very common name. When archaeologists have done digs around Jerusalem, around Galilee, where Je in Nazareth, where Jesus lived, and they dug up all these tombs, they found over 100 names on these tombs where the same, it's the same name, Jesus. So we know that in first century Palestine that there were actually a lot of people named Jesus. It was a very common name. So why is it that when the angel says, to name your baby, one of the most common names of that particular year, why did that crystallize for Joseph and Mary that this was it, this was the child, the Messiah? So just doing a little bit of research, okay, on this, it's this. Jesus, okay, the name Jesus is English, right? And the name Jesus actually comes from the Greek name, it's a translation from the Greek name, Isus, in Greek. Can we go to the next slide, guys? Next. There we go. Okay, great. Thank you. So, Jesus is English. It's a translation directly, not from the Hebrew, but from the Greek, from the Greek Isus, all right? Isus is actually coming from the Hebrew. That's Jesus's native, right? He's, he's Hebrew. His name is Yeshu. Yeshu is Hebrew. That's what he would have called. Yeshu is also a shorthand name, shorthand form of the name Yeshua. So people would have actually called Jesus Yeshua. But Yeshua is also a short-form name of Jesus' full name is Yehoshua. Okay? But his friends and his family, everyone would have called him Yeshua bar Yosef. Yeshua, son of Joseph. Yehoshua, Yeshu means 
salvation. It means God saves. It means God saves. Yeshua, if you translated Yeshua directly from Hebrew to English, anybody want to guess what that name would be? It'd be Joshua. It'd be Joshua. Okay? So Jesus' real name is actually Joshua. But the reason we call him Jesus is because we get that name from the Greek translation, not directly from the Hebrew translation. All right? So when he heard, when he heard, uh, Joshua, uh, when Joseph heard that his name was going to be Joshua, the most common name, right, is that everyone would have understood that this was the Joshua they've all been waiting for. And the most famous Joshua, of course, was who came after Moses. Moses delivered Egypt, delivered the Israelites from Egypt. But Joshua is the warrior king, the warrior leader who brought Israel into the promised land, who brought them, was the, again, was the deliverer. Time and time again, Joseph, he saved his people from foreign enemies. Joshua saved his people from doing wrong. See, the only reason during first century Palestine, the reason why there were a lot of people named Jesus, the reason, uh, Joshua, the reason why you named your child Joshua was because you wanted your child to be the next warrior king. And the reason that Joshua was so popular during first century Palestine was because Israel needed a savior now because they were under roman occupation and so every parent every parent hoped that in their generation every parent hoped that in their child's generation that there would be a deliverer that would rescue the jews from their oppression to be a joshua that's why when the angel said god is going to give the name yeshua it was like igniting the flames of revolution that this wasn't going to be a joshua like all of the parents are naming their kids joshua but this was going to be the Joshua. This was going to be the promised deliverer, the son of David, the Messiah of virgin birth that everyone was hoping for. And so it crystallized all that emotion that, yes, this is it. And yes, by the way, you've been pronouncing Jesus' name wrong all these years. It's Joshua, not Jesus. That's why your prayers haven't been answered, guys. We just got the Son of God's name just all wrong, praying to the wrong God. So getting back to verse 21, getting all that emotion, says this, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will. And at this point, everyone knows, everyone who's reading this, who has that Jewish background, understanding all the texts, everything surrounding him being the Messiah, Everyone knows the next words. At this point, everyone knows what Matthew's going to say because there's only one reason that you bring in a Joshua, right? That the Messiah will come to save his people. And everyone's like, yes, that's what we need. That's what we've been waiting for. Of course, that's what the Messiah's going to do. He's going to save his people. And everyone's like, yes, this is the best Christmas ever, what we've been waiting for. The Messiah has come. But the angel didn't stop there. He says, from there, and then from there, and then everyone else would have said, yeah, we know what's coming next. He's going to save us like Joshua saved us and like David saved us and Moses saved us and all the deliverers saved us. He's going to save us from our enemies. He's going to save us from our oppressors. He's going to save us from all the evil that's outside there in the world. But the angel says this. He says, I'm going to save them the people from their 
sins. To which Joseph and Mary and the other first century leaders would have thought, what? Save us from our sins? It was a little disappointing because that's not the immediate need, right? I mean, in fact, the Jews, they had this thing called the temple, the temple system where they could go there and be kind of absolved of their sins. Look, we got this sin thing taken care of, angel. Don't look at our sins. Look at the sins of the Romans. Save us not from our sin. Save us from the sins of the Romans who are sinning against us and they're oppressing us. Deliver us from the Romans. They're killing us. They're, they're enslaving us. Look, look, look. Angel, angel. Like, we can't get this in part. Don't you? Have you ever seen this before, angel? Next slide. Have you ever seen this before, angel? Don't you know this? Don't you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs? You know, because look, this is where we are. Our physical needs aren't even being met right now because the Romans, you know, they take all of our wealth away. The majority of us are poor. When it comes to safety, there's no safety. We have no rights. The Roman soldiers, they could just pluck us, pull us off the street and make them their slave. Our sense of belonging, we have no sense of belonging because as an occupied nation, our families have been ripped apart through slavery, through forced deportations, Roman gods, Roman culture, Greek language, esteem. Our esteem, we, we're t our esteem is tied to the land. And we have no land. This land is not our land anymore. We're treated like dogs. And so you want to talk about sin? You want to talk about this self-actualization, like getting better on the inside? Like, what are you talking about, angel? There, there's no way. We don't need a savior from our sins. You know, that's not really a felt need right now. We need to be saved from Rome, not our sin. We need to be saved. We need to be free from Rome, not our sin. And I wonder for us, too, I wonder if that's how a lot of us, when it comes to our relationship with God and what we want from God, that this is kind of the approach that we take with God. God, you know, the real problem is out there. God, the real problem are the people at my work or God, the real problem is the track of, of, of my job. God, the real problem is my boss. God, the real evil in this world is, is my spouse. And we're just, you know, not getting along. God, for me, the real problem are my parents. Or God, for me, the real problem are my kids. God, the real problem, free me from these other circumstances. God, you're not focused on the real issue here. God, you're not really helping me with the real problem that's presenting itself in my life when the rubber hits the road. What is your, what is your Rome? What is your Rome? What is enslaving you? What are you so preoccupied with that it takes control of your life? What are you so consumed with that it's consuming you? What is your Rome? What is holding you captive? And so, you know, we have a lot of different things in our lives. And you might say, well, I feel like a prisoner at my job, or I feel like a prisoner in the kind of career track I'm in. Our boss is, he's like Rome. He's like Nero. Uh, you might say, I'm enslaved to mortgage or my debts or my credit card. And you might say, man, the evil banks, they're the real problem in this world. You might say, you feel like a prisoner in your marriage or my spouse is the real problem. I'm not the real problem. My spouse is the real problem. A lot of you might say, Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C., that's the real problem. The White House, that's the new Rome. What's your Rome? Uh, maybe for you, your Rome is not necessarily like a place or, or a location that is or a company or something like that. But, but maybe your Rome is you feel like you're stuck in a particular place in life. 
You, you feel like you're enslaved in a particular station in life that you just can't seem to get out of. Or maybe you have no roots in that place. You have no home. You feel a little bit lost. See, when, you're, when you feel like you're enslaved by Rome, you feel a little bit lost. And what's interesting is that Jesus, when he gets older, he's able to speak for himself about why he came. Christmas is, tells us about how he came. Jesus, as an adult, tells us about why he came. Verse, uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says this. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The lost. And one of the reasons that us people, one of the reasons we're so lost is because so many times we can't even identify the problems that are plaguing us. One of the reasons we're, we're so lost is because sometimes we can't even admit the sins that are hindering us. One of the reasons sometimes humans are so lost is because we always want to blame other people for our problems and cannot identify the issues and the things that are within us. And so Joseph, uh, and so a, the angel is saying to Joseph, look, you've got a much bigger problem than Rome. You've got a problem that's going to outlast Rome. There's going to be kingdoms that come after Rome. There's been kingdoms before, and there's kingdoms after. And there's a big problem that the world faces that's much bigger than what you understand. It's the sin. And you need a savior, and the world needs a savior to deliver you from sin. And what the Messiah wants to do for you, he also wants to do for Rome. And so what's your Rome? Now, some of you also, when you think about your Rome, you're actually agreeing with the angel. You're like, yeah, those things are external. You know, people in high places or the evil in this world. If you just replace some of those people with, quote, unquote, the better person, sometimes it just devolves. It just, people are going through the same thing. And just history seems to repeat itself. They, people with power and they get corrupt. And for some of you, you might say, yeah, I know, I agree with the angel. You know, the Rome that I need to be free from it is on the inside. They are my sins. They are the way that I see myself. I'm enslaved to lust. I'm enslaved to jealousy. I'm enslaved to pride. I'm enslaved to resentment, anger. There's just some people I cannot forgive. I'm enslaved to that. I'm enslaved to selfishness, insecurity, envy, addiction, pain of my past, fear of the future. I've, you know, when I think about those things, I just feel kind of sick inside. And what's interesting too, is that Jesus would also, that he would go on to say in Luke chapter 5, verse 31, that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And it's not that Jesus only came for a select group of people called sinners, and there's these group called the righteous. No, what he's saying is that Jesus can only be heard by, Jesus came for everyone. But for those who can really hear him are the ones who have the humility to say, I'm not the righteous. The problems aren't out all there. But the problems stem from the sin that's inside here. It's those who can admit that, who can hear the words of Jesus. And so you see, Jesus, he knows that externally, that big bad Rome isn't the ultimate problem. That your job isn't the problem. Your parents aren't the problem. Your spouse isn't ultimately the problem. Your, uh, your company isn't ultimately the problem. The government isn't ultimately the problem. The angel says, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people 
from their sins. We need to be saved from ourselves first. There's a lot of evil in the world. There's a lot of things we want to change in the world, but it's here that needs to be continually transformed first. The problems out there all come from the sin that's in here. And if there was some way to change this, if there was some way to heal this, if there was some way to deliver this, there might be real hope in the world. And there might be real hope for the world. And so kind of going back to that, that hierarchy, Jesus kind of turns the whole thing on its head. And the goal then is not self-fulfillment, but it actually starts with this idea of surrender. Surrender. Where you raise your hand, where you say, Jesus, yeah, I'm in that category. I'm part of that sick category. I need a doctor. You raise your hand and admit, God, I'm lost. I'm sick on the inside. And that Jesus died on the cross so that we might receive the gift of eternal life. Eternal life meaning forever and eternal life that there's a quality to our lives here and now. That the sacrifices that we make in this life for love and for others, that what we do in the here and now makes a difference in the then and there. That we surrender our lives to God. That's our foundation, our beginning point. And God gives us the gift of salvation. The Joshua, what we needed to be set free, forgiven, and free from the bondage of sin. And on that foundation, our esteem changes, our esteem transforms, where our value is no longer secured by the land we possess or how we're treated or what your parents said about you, no matter how hurtful, that your esteem comes directly from your heavenly father who looks at you and says, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. You're forgiven and you're free and you're declared right before God. And the gift that you're given is this unshakable, this unshakable new identity based not on what people say, what's in your bank account, or even what you think about yourself in the moment. You begin experiencing a new identity based on what God says about you. The only opinion that really, really matters. And then on that foundation, there's this sense of your sense of belonging transforms. Maybe in life you felt like you've never really feel, fit in with a particular crowd. Maybe you've always felt like on the outside of a particular group. You never had a tribe. But now you do. Now you do. Because in Christ then you belong to Jesus. And Jesus gave us the gift of the church, the big C church, not the cis church. And as a church, we're just a bunch of recovering sinners. That's what we are. We're a bunch of recovering sinners. We're far from perfect. But when we're walking with God, filled with the Spirit of God, the church then becomes a city on the hill, a place where people can actually find love, inspiration, acceptance, and hope. You know, just, just two weeks ago, downstairs in the fellowship hall, we had a gathering uh, of, of pastors uh, in our fellowship hall. And this was for, in 2018, you know how we do this community serve day. We went over and served Dearborn. So there's another one. It's kind of growing, and more churches are doing it every year. And so we actually had a, uh, a luncheon, an informational luncheon, for pastors that were interested in doing it in 2018. So we had about 30 pastors uh, come from the Seattle area, and we had lunch, and we had, that lunch was catered. And as the delivery person uh, was dropping off all the lunch boxes, 
uh, she came in, she dropped them off on the lunchboxes on a table. And as she was leaving, as she was at the door, she just turned around and said this. She said, I just want to thank you for all that you guys do in our community. I'm actually a parent at Dearborn, and some of my kids go there, and I've been to some of the things here at the church. I, I didn't recognize her. I didn't know who she was. And then she just, and then her last thing was, was this, which just struck me. She said, you guys give so much hope to our community. I was like, wow. We're in Seattle, and someone said that about the church? I mean, that's amazing, <laughs> right? Amazing. Blew me away. That's what the church is supposed to be. And on that foundation as well is our need for safety transforms. Instead of worshiping the God of security that keeps the vision of our lives so small that we have the gift of faith to believe in a God that can do the miracle, that can make something out of nothing, to believe in a God that can change the world, to believe in a God who's not far away, but a God that's in our hearts, that God that's in our homes, the God, the God that is in our families, in our city, in our neighborhoods, in our country, to believe in a big God who loves the whole world unconditionally because he proved his love for us by dying on the cross and he proved his power by being raised from the dead. And on that foundation, our physical needs are met. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom, surrender your life's salvation, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, your safety, your sense of belonging, your esteem, all these things will be given to you as well. And Jesus isn't saying, don't worry about you know, nothing. And he's not saying be irresponsible with your needs. He's just reminding us that life isn't just about scraping by. And it's interesting because we're in the richest country, right, on the world, on the planet. And yet there's so many of us who live as if we're just scraping by. A lot of us, we know that we're rich compared to the world standards that live on $250 a day or 80% of the world that lives on less than $10 a day. God has already given us so much. And so it's important for us as Christians then to be asking also that question or hearing God ask that question, what are we doing for the kingdom? Is anybody out there worried about God's kingdom and God's righteousness? Is there anybody worried about real poverty? Is there anybody worried about real injustice? Is there anybody worried about disconnected people? Is there anybody worried about the next generation of teenagers? Is there anybody worried about the other nations who still haven't heard? Is there anybody going to talk to your boss? Is there anyone who's going to talk to your neighbor, your friend, or even your enemy? And the gift that God gives us is the gift of peace. The gift of peace about temporal things so that we can focus on the eternal things. And just maybe, just maybe, if I, a sinner like me, if I can be transformed by God, then maybe others can be transformed. And if others can be transformed, maybe a community can be transformed. And if a community can be transformed, then maybe a city can be transformed. And if a city can be transformed, then maybe a country can be transformed, and so on and so on. And that's why 2,000 years later, this movement of celebrating Jesus, this movement of following the God of the universe has not gone away. That's why today, with 2.3 billion believers, we're all celebrating the birth of Jesus together. That's 31% of the world's population. That's the largest religious group on the planet. And so again, where, where is your Rome? Where is your Rome? And, and I know it might feel like 
in this season that Rome is outside. It's, it's everything outside. It's, it's your boss. It's your work. It's your spouse. It's, it's the company. It's everything that's wrong. Is, it's with the government. It's white house. White, it's with the kids. It's with the parents. It's in the in-laws. It's something always that's external to you. But the real change, the real change that God points us to, the real change that can bring real change <laughs> that you need is the transformation that takes place in a heart that's surrendered to God. The real change that can be real hope for the world is the change that needs to take place in your heart and the heart of your brother, of your sister, of your fellow human being. And this change is the forgiveness of sins and it's the birth of a new life in Christ where you are free where you are free. Salvation is the gift. It's the gift of Christmas that begets all of the other gifts of Christmas. That is why Yeshua, that's why Jesus, that's why Joshua came for you. Would you, would you consider, would you receive his gift this Christmas? Would you bow your heads with me? Lord God, thank you for this time we've had together as we celebrate and we think about the birth of Jesus Christ and we think about and reminded of the powerful hope that you bring. And the hope is not based on mythology. The hope is not based on best guesses. Our hope is based on the reality of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The God of the universe who demonstrated, who proved his love for us by dying on the cross and being raised to new life. And I just want to pray for those who this day, who just, it, today's the day. Today's the day to give our life, to surrender our life to Christ, the God of the universe who died on the cross so that I might live, that I might be forgiven, and that I might be set free. And so if that's you today, uh, you can just pray with me this prayer and say, Jesus, Yeshua, thank you for giving your life for me on the cross. Thank you that your death paid the debt of all of my sin. And thank you that your spirit given to me gives me a new life, brand new life in Christ where I'm forgiven and I'm free from the power of sin. And my esteem is no longer based on what people can say or think about me, but it's fully based in your love for me. And my sense of belonging, I come into a new family called the church. And God, all these things that I worry about, Lord, you are the God of the universe. And you have set eternity in my heart, Father, so that I can focus on the things that are truly significant and real that will last in the ever after. So thank you, Father, for today, for the new life. I surrender my life to you that I may receive true life. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for all your works, for the blessing of Christmas, for the light of your Son to invade this world, that the darkness would dissipate. 
and we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, church. Let's all stand together. chapter 2, verse 8 to 14. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and laying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests.
Christ, His will. 
amen, amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen, church. Merry, Merry Christmas. Would you go around this morning to say Merry Christmas to your friends next to you? Amen. <laughs>